Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. Hi, my name is Iris, and I am a film critic. Hello, Iris. <laughs> and today, <laughs> we are discussing... That didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> what up, and welcome... Oh, I get it. You were doing <laughs> the AA thing. Yeah. <laughs> what up and welcome to or whatever movies i'm your co-host iris i'm here with my older brother Ooh. <laughs> wesley and today Wait. we <laughs> today we are talking a movie written directed and starring jim cummins the Wolf of Snow Hollow. <laughs> you said it all country like Jim Cummings. <laughs> Jim Cummings. Jim Cummings. The Wolf of Snow Hollow, a film currently available on VOD. The Wolf of Snow Hollow came out in October, and I was interested in reviewing it for Halloween, oh, as yeah. you recall. Our, our slate was pretty full. Yep. It is now available for rent. So let me start this review, if I may. You seem really excited about this one, so go for it. I am. I think The Wolf of Snow Hollow is a perfect fitting end review for 2020. Happy New Year's Eve. All right, proceed. The finale of this movie takes place on New Year's Eve. Anyway, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Poster is great. It's kind of gothic and, and old-timey. The movie is very old-timey. We start off with Orion Pictures, Orion Classics. And Kelly asserted, no, it's because this is an old movie. And I said, no, look how 4K those trees are. I got the sense that they were going for an 80s vibe and old-timey feel, I guess, if old if 80s is old-timey. Well, you know, these Utah small towns are kind of timeless anyway. Right, and I think that's that plays very well in what they were trying to accomplish. Everything from the opening shots of the trees, very ominous, very Blair Witch Project. Very isolated, isolating. Uh-huh, and everything from the moon with the clouds to the moon reflecting in the puddles, it all felt very early 80s creature feature, werewolf monster movie to me. And I was in it, man. The vibe was going. I was excited. I felt like this was a smaller, independent, gold nugget werewolf movie that was largely under the radar, but uh, kind of came into this whole thing cold, if you'll excuse the pun. Get, get it? <laughs> and what kind of what? Cold. You know, I got it. Because it's, it's Utah and it's cold. Yeah, it looked very cold. What kind yep. of movie is The Wolf of Snow Hollow? So I'm looking at about a quarter of the way through my notes, and I tend to front load the notes and see how the movie evolves. And I wrote down Kelly saying, and I quote, so 
is this a comedy? And I scoffed at the time. I was like, it's not a comedy. Wait, at what point did she say this? I'm not really sure. It was around the time we first met the wife and the kid of Jim's character. Yeah, because there's one particular sequence, I think, that follows shortly after that diner scene with the mom, where the score is distinctly comedic. Yes, it started to veer into P.T. Anderson's score territory where it was twice as loud as it needed to be, and it drove the scene in a relentless way. And it changed the movie tonally, and I thought, this is a little bit distracting, but we've had movies like Uncut Gems, where the soundtrack gets a little bit out of out of, out of pocket, a little bit out of hand, and the score tends to dominate, and it distracts us and takes our focus away, if it's contrary to what I perceive the theme of the movie to be. So when the music got crazy, I was like, what is happening here? Well, I think it's also effective in creating this underlying stress when the score is relentless like that and maybe tonally inconsistent. I feel like it creates like an unsettling feeling that maybe that can be conducive to to the story. I'm all about atmosphere in movies, but what this did was it pried my icy grip off of this idea of a werewolf movie and flung me in an unexpected direction. And I struggled with that mightily. So you found yourself a little adrift? Maybe a little bit. But it wasn't just the music, obviously. And it wasn't all that abrupt to turn. It started out when our friend Julia, played by Ricky Lindholm, who was part of the comedy. My bad. She's part of the comedy duo Garfunkel and Oates. I don't know if Jim Cummings is a comedian, but she definitely is. And that maybe should have been a tip off. Robert Forster, not exactly a comedian, but neither here nor there. So I'm watching it and she's at home. And we know that wolf killings are starting to happen around Snow Hollow. But then she takes her service pistol and puts it in her sweatpants while she's at home. And I was like, why would you do that? Take the pistol and you put it on the kitchen table next to you while you're eating cereal or whatever. You don't tuck a pistol into your sweatpants. How experienced are you with carrying a pistol? Enough to know that they don't hold for shit in your sweatpants. (laughs) You see, you're kind of getting a little nitpicky here, right? Like how she carries her pistol and... So it wasn't just the gun, but it was my starting to lose my footing or my toehold in this movie. Another moment was at one point when they're investigating the initial murder, both John and Julia look right to camera. And I was like, what's happening? And then we cut to a shot of the little evidence tent where they're examining the remains, right? Yeah. And I was like, all right, that was a little bit of a jarring shot. And maybe it's not what I would have done. But then they did it again. He, Jim Cummings, looks to the camera again in the middle of a, a table conversation. This fourth wall stuff sucks. It's, it's taking a movie that's supposed to have a serious tone and it's disarming me in a way that's not effective or doesn't lend to the unsettling, scary, creepy factor. And it culminated when he slapped the medical examiner and it was like, the wimpiest little slap ever, which started a tussle (laughs) that I thought was a joke. Jim Cummings is the problem. And he started to get manic and yelling at everybody. Yeah. Started to lose his grip. You know, I'm not sure if this is when his drinking kicked back in, but he was definitely stable and didn't read to me as zany when he was in AA. And when he started drinking, we've talked about being realistically drunk and then being Nicolas Cage- Gary Oldman Mank level of drunk where you're stumbling around and slurring and it's almost a comedy. And John Marshall is definitely the Jim Carrey level of drunk. Huh. So 
not believable, farcical. Kelly, at one point later on, she said, and I think it was a little bit later down the line, she said, I do not like him. <laughs> and I thought, who is letting this dude run free? Who's giving this dude rein to let loose in this performance? Well, he's the director. Which I didn't find out until the very end. But it's in the opening credit sequence. Yeah, no, I, I have no basis for this guy. I didn't know who Jim Cummings was. But story-wise, he has leeway because he's the sheriff's son. Yeah, okay. But tonally, Sheriff Hadley, Robert Forrester, set a tone. And even he was not the Robert Forrester sheriff that I expected. The grim-faced, practical reality. Even in Utah towns, we, we occasionally see horrible murders. This is just like the, the murders we had in the 70s or something. And he wasn't. He was insecure and strangely off-tone for the Robert Forrester that I was expecting. So I'm trying to reconcile my expectations yeah. with, with what the movie delivered. That's what it sounds like. This movie butted up against your expectations and you spent a lot of time reconciling simultaneously while while watching and trying to like enjoy or ingest this movie. But when the medical examiner starts his clapping thing, you're, it's your job to find the killers. And then Jim Cummings slaps him in return, that yeah. little baby slap. Yeah. And when I brought that up, you laughed. Yeah, there was lots of slapping. And they intercut that medical examiner tussle with the sheriff with the killing, the brutal werewolf, I guess, killing of one of the other victims. Right. And that was when I realized that anything ominous... It was the mom and maybe did the toddler die too? The, yes, the toddler died. The mom, who had just been accosted by this strange dude in the diner, knows there's a crazy wolf man about, was directly targeted, then drove down the street with a toddler and was like, I shall get out of the vehicle and examine this deer conveniently placed in the middle of the road. Yeah. What requires examining about a deer in the road? Like, don't you Nothing. just kind of swerve around it and keep on your merry way? You have way? to get close enough to observe the obviously placed handprint on the deer's butt, but there is no reason. I was like, not only should you not get out of the car, you shouldn't even stop the car. You have a child. You of all people know how dangerous this is. Keep it moving and right. go around the deer. Well, did you find there to be some kind of story parallel between Jim Cummings' um, tussle and her getting mauled by the werewolf? Only that anything ominous in this movie, like the medical examination of the poor victim and this woman with her daughter, that was meant to be ominous just became comical. So you're so you wanted it to be scary. I wanted it to be scary or at least totally comedic. I mean, American Werewolf in London is one of my favorites. That's definitely a horror comedy, and there is very there are very clear moments of horror, and there are very clear moments of levity, and never the twain shall meet. They don't intercut them and they don't diminish either extreme with the other, and I think, which I think is what they did here. It was successfully done in Tucker and Dale versus Evil. That was definitely a reference point for my conversation about this movie with Brian. So, and I also think it's very interesting how expectations play into your our opinions of The Wolf of Snow Hollow because it sounds like you went in with a lot of expectations, mostly of the genre itself. And I went in with pretty much no expectations, except that I knew that you were kind of oddly excited about this. And then Brian went in the coldest. Brian literally sat down and was like, what are you watching? And he just sat there and watched this and saw it devolve. And I found his complete dislike for this film to be 
hilarious. And I'm kind of feeling the same way about your review right now. Brian will be happy to hear this review so far because he said to me last night, and I paraphrase, if Wesley likes this movie, I will never respect him again. (laughs) So... (laughs) And so in trying to balance the elements of scary and funny and how I can show how ineffective this movie handled that dynamic, it can all be boiled down to the scene with the daughter in her underpants. But when he shows up and sees a werewolf that he unloads his service revolver at and then pulls his daughter out of the car, instead of shoving her into the cruiser and getting her the hell out of there, they have an extended conversation and argument in the middle of the street. Mind you, the daughter is not oblivious. It's not like dad showed up, saw the werewolf about to creep up to their car and started shooting. And she's like, dad, what are you doing? You're crazy. They were terrorized. And the thing did the scary werewolf hand on the back window and and scraped down the snow and they were freaked out. And still they had the (laughs) Long argument drawn out in her underpants in the snow in the street without getting to safety. He turned his back on the direction in which the werewolf ran so that he could yell at his daughter. So the appropriate reaction would have been for her to be scared and not want to have it out with her dad in the street. Is that what you're saying? We'll deal with this later at the worst. Unnecessary dialogue as he drags her by the hair out of that dude's Jeep, throws her in the cruiser where she will be safe and then gets out of there. To clarify, the wolf breaks through the passenger side window and she falls straddle-legged out the door in her underwear into the snow. So she's already on the street when her dad arrives on the scene. And the werewolf is already down the block by the time he unloads the last round of of his pistol. You don't know that. I mean, I'm not saying that I wasn't stressed out. I'm not saying that I wasn't like, get in the car! But it's not so unbelievable that they could have the exchange in relative safety. Okay. But that felt like the wrong decision in a string of wrong decisions. It was almost as though Jim Cummings was laying out scenes that he expected the audience to like and was compromising practicality or reality in service of those story devices to keep us entertained. Sheriff John packs up all his stuff, right? And he's on the verge of this nervous breakdown. The great Robert Forster, Sheriff Hadley, has unceremoniously, literally unceremoniously died. No funeral or anything. He's sick one moment. He's dead the next moment. And we're left with, John's left with the repercussions. But talk about an ignominious end for the great Robert Forster. Leaves the screen doesn't return to this movie at all. I don't think he died during production or anything. Every other character gets a funeral. And so that kind of sucked, but maybe it was the sudden abrupt departure that's supposed to weigh on us and sort of bother us. I can't tell how much of this was intentional by our director, writer, star Jim Cummings. But Jim Cummings, the writer, actor, director, has some serious natural werewolfy teeth. Canine, pointy canine teeth and kind of a grimacey smile. But and I was like, are they, is this deliberate? <laughs> have they been planting that seed the whole movie? Right. And I, and I feel like in one of the conversations where they're, where they're discussing potential suspects, he's looking particularly toothy. And I, I too was like, hmm, I wonder. It's interesting Tonally, this movie wasn't clear enough for me to make a call if supernatural elements exist in this world. And maybe that was intentional, but I certainly wasn't, I wasn't sure, basically until the ending, if 
there are werewolves in this world or if this is um, a Sherlock Holmes-esque mystery where logic always prevails. The point is that the tome was employed to keep us from understanding the rules of this world. It wasn't clear enough to kind of embrace what we did get, is what you're suggesting? That the tone, whether it was intentional or not, and whether it was effective or not, could have been employed to keep us on our toes. So you should see my notes. I took more than twice the notes that I would ordinarily for a movie, and it fills up an entire page. And that's partly because as I went on, it got more scribbly and, and larger in font. Like it gets huge at the end. Like in a frustrating gets, way? Like in yeah, a it just gets exas- bigger like and bigger. <laughs> exasperated like, way? The taxidermist, did he take like a wolf head and make these bites? Like what's he, how is this? Because they're, they're always talking about the width of the bite and the width of the paw prints to suggest how large this wolf this, is. Yeah, the slashing talons or claws. I mean, when John stumbles into his secret lair, you see on his pegboard that he's got all of these menacing looking Jack the Ripper-esque tools. So he was a skilled taxidermist and he had jaws and spikes and knives and stuff at his disposal. So ostensibly he, he used those in his killings. Sure, but he also lives in a small Utah town up in the mountains. And at that point, I was pretty clear in the idea that it was a werewolf. Like you thought it was a like a supernatural, legitimate werewolf. We saw multiple maulings with no visible tools in the killer's hands. And I thought, okay, it's a werewolf. This dude is obviously the werewolf. But, you know, I didn't get the idea that the tools factored in. It's only after the fact. Yeah. So, yeah. And so the Paul Carnery character as the uh, taxidermist was only introduced because he came forward with some information when they had witnesses come and make statements, right? Oh, yeah, because I was really... Oh. Oh, I was wondering. I knew he had seen him, but I couldn't put my finger on where or when. And Brian was like incessantly asking me, when did we see him? Has he been introduced? Like, is this a brand new character? Yeah. And I Just was the like, character who's going to be the killer? You have to establish him, right? Right. We had lots of those people, but it seemed like this movie wanted us to believe that anybody who came forward and made a statement thereby had all their stuff confiscated as evidence until it could be returned later, which conveniently would bring Officer John to their houses. Yeah, and it would all further... not in uniform and unofficial and being cold. Like, yeah, I know your daughter was murdered, but I got this stuff and I want you to sign for it to show that you got it back. It was used to further demonstrate his lack of bedside manner intact. Yes. And so, yeah, practically speaking, we have to reconcile ourselves with the idea that he used some tools and went to great pains to make it look like an animal or a wolf had done this mauling. Yeah. I mean, but after the fact, maybe he was like, ah, and like killed the people with tools or whatever. Or maybe he fashioned tools that looked like he had this murderous handsaw thing or something that where you hack the people and it looks like a wolf's bite. Right. Based on the me- the precise measurement of the jaws. Maybe he made a Freddy Krueger style customized weapon out of wolf teeth. Sure. And was slashing at people with it. That could have been cooler, but. You mean like if it was specified and we saw it? Right. If he busted out his wolf teeth mace thing and went after Sheriff John. 
No, and instead he, killed he just him in the thing. runs off into the woods. Yeah, got him in the arm, and then he like shot him, and the and the thing fell into the snow or whatever. And you're like, oh, that's what he was using to kill, because it was obvious <laughs> when he super awkwardly, for some reason, not being suspicious, like Clary Starling level naivete, saying, "Could you?" Um, Possibly stand up to your full height, obvious werewolf killer that I've been searching for. Let, keeping the door between them in the most innovative. And he's like, darn it, when the door closes. And then he pulls out his gun. It's so confusing the way it was handled. But kind of effective when he rises to his full height and you're like, damn, that dude's tall. Right. And then, and then Ten the, uh, seconds after we're clear that he's the werewolf. And then the coverage of Jim Cummins. He looks like itty bitty. and Yeah. So all props to the DP for making that an effective shot. But the fact that he somehow made it look like, Carnery that is, made it look like a a werewolf attack or maybe just a wolf attack, a huge wolf after the fact, doesn't account for the fact that in the middle of the attack on one of the women, whatever he does results in her arm being gone immediately. Like this wasn't done in the bushes afterwards to make it look like a wolf attack. He was like, arr, and her, her arm was gone. In the first attack, which we didn't see, he also, I don't know how you remove like a whole pelvis area or vagina with tools but <laughs> the vagina the the vagectomy dude <laughs> uh but yeah you know he, um there are probably machete like tools that can hack off an arm yeah a machete is is actually what i said to kelly and she was like he didn't have it's not like he was holding a machete where would he have a machete and i said he's got like a sheath on his back like folded it sewn into the fur costume or whatever yeah or it's like a hidden machete that or he a pocket draws. on his calf yeah yeah like that it's like a hidden machete wolf sheath and so my notes are getting out of hand i'm down to my last three notes in the book and they're way larger and the third to last says how bad could this movie suck because it kept getting suckier and suckier and i felt a little bit cheated that all the stuff we had seen before where they're like is it a wolf is it a man we don't know and then we're like oh it's clearly a werewolf we're watching a werewolf kill people he's shooting at the werewolf he's either the worst shot ever or this thing is actually a werewolf and the bullets more or less bounce off it or go through it but by the time the final chase happened i was like okay it's a dumb twist let's see how it plays out I was hoping for some something to substantiate or justify taking it in that direction and seeing him raise, rise to his full height. The idea that, okay, it's not a werewolf, it's a man, and you were duped the whole time. Look at my twist, and we see the dude raised to his full height, and he's in a wolf costume. E- even more Silence of the Lambsiness, right? Where he, spoiler, not what we thought it was all along, despite all the weird clues placed throughout that it was not what we thought it was. All the Mr. X. And so he gets gutted. Yeah. And then goes on a chase. Yep. And I cannot imagine he survives. Does he survive? Yes. He so he goes and drops his daughter off at college. Oh, right, right. And she has, then we have the other misdirect, which is, I left something for you. And she's like, ew, gross. And you're like, huh, she thinks it's condoms, but it's a gun. And then she pulls out condoms. And we're like, oh, it really is condoms. But then it really (laughs) is a gun, even though it's never shown, right? I assume it was a gun, yes, in addition. It could have been pepper spray, but I don't think that would have elicited that look. There, there was comedy in there, too. You remember the pepper spray that you're never going to have to use ever? We'll need to keep it on you at all times. Obviously not going to be any kind of deterrent for a machete-wielding fake werewolf with a mask on. But whatever. (laughs) When I come out of a movie like this, I feel strongly. 
And when I feel this strongly about a movie, I tend not to do the insightful stuff. First of all, they gave Robert Forrester his due. They did the dedication. Yep. And my second to last note in big font says, you don't deserve that dedication. This movie didn't earn, earn its place as being a tribute to Robert Forster's career and the capping of his career. So I was mad. I am seeing that now. And and then the very last thing that takes up three lines in my notebook, I wrote, he wrote and directed it. Yep. This is my my twist. I was about to say, that was your twist. (laughs) Yeah. My big thing where I was like, it all makes sense now. How Jim Cummings could go so far and do what he did in this movie because no one had a choice in the matter. Yeah, there was he no... Was like, this is how yeah. I'm playing it. Brian said he watched a featurette on this film. As did I. Oh, really? It Was it the same one where all where everybody involved in the filmmaking was praising Jim Cummings? No, it wasn't. It was him speaking. He seems like a scrappy up-and-coming writer-director who's trying to get his stuff made, who's trying to get it out there. Sure. And then, unfortunately, he said that some of the heavier alcoholic-fueled stuff where he's filled with frustration and self-doubt came from a real place where he was in a quandary in the middle of the movie where he was trying to find the right tone and trying to understand what the audience would expect. And he was really afraid. And he said, I I can't have this movie get 60 minutes in and then start to suck. So I was really freaking out. I was trying to find out what would work and it all being on his shoulders. And I felt for the guy. And he said this idea of likable characters, he completely dismisses. He said that this, this idea that all the characters have to be likable in movies uh, for viewers is what he called a mind virus that he would like to eradicate altogether. <laughs> well, this makes sense. It's, it's much more interesting when people aren't likable in movies, when you don't have to like everything they do or or understand. It makes for a more interesting dynamic character. And if it falls too pat, they become forgettable. There I'm paraphrasing him, but he did say the mind virus bit. Hmm. And then likewise, he said that he was always striving for the laughter, even amid the horror. Again, paraphrasing, but what is not is his direct quote, where he said, laughter is the mind sneezing. It's a very genuine thing that you can't control. And so when you elicit that response, you know you've hit something in people that's undeniable. People watch movies by themselves. They don't fake laugh to themselves. They either laugh or they don't. And if you can elicit a real laugh, then you've elicited a genuine response. And that's what he was striving for. Well, it is the best uh, release valve for tension and horror. Sure. If that tension has been appropriately built up to require a release. And so I was like, oh, Jim Cummings is thoughtful and insightful and taking control of this movie and wanting it to be entertaining and working hard to make an ambitious movie based on a really small budget. He talked about little pickups that they did long after the fact that they cheated for almost no money because he really wanted it to feel rounded and complete. And I was like, oh, it's so nice. A person who's really taking all the reins, taking all the responsibility and churning out a movie that hopefully we can enjoy that he can say was Robert Forster's final film. And I hope I did him justice in his final on-screen appearance. And I'm so sorry, Jim Cummings, you didn't and your movie sucked. Is that your official review? <sighs> the only way that I give movies my lowest rating is when they piss me off is when there's so much opportunity for it to be good and then those things go so far awry that I'm angry, angry and stewing as a result. 
The Wolf of Snow Hollow is the absolute perfect movie to cap our 2020 review season. It's the perfect end for this year, 2020. The perfect you mean movie tonally. A complete, a complete disappointment of a year? Started out with such promise, so quickly went awry, and then just devolved in ways that were shocking. How could so, this movie suck so badly? How could 2020 and the people in charge of 2020 <laughs> consistently choose exactly the opposite of what my choices would have been? It's perfect. It's a perfect whatever? The Wolf of Snow Hollow is a perfect nope movie. Wow. And we had also drawn a comparison between 2020 and Borat's subsequent movie film. How does that differ? I gave Borat an all right review. All right. Because it's not my type of movie. But I can see this, the hard scrabble guerrilla style filmmaking and the expertise behind it. I'm having some weird sadistic pleasure right now in hearing your ire. <laughs> hearing you express and direct your ire toward the Wolf of Snow Oh, God. <laughs> I, and, I even said... <laughs> I even said in my review of JFK that if it makes you angry, you know, the controversy and subscribing to these fantastic conspiracy theories, if it makes you angry in some way, it's got to be effective. Right. Because it's stirring something up in you. I mean, I can see everything you're saying, and it's almost um, perfectly echoing or mirroring what Brian had to say. Like, Brian was angry that we wasted two perfectly good hours of our lives watching this movie. And he came in with no expectations, so it's not like he was disappointed from that. I mean, if anything set him up for disappointment, it was the beautiful aerial drone shots at the top, which he thought were very artistic so and well done. So awesome. And then he got angrier and angrier, and his questions <laughs> became more and more incessant until they were rhetorical questions and exclamations of his like disappointment and hate. He was just like, I don't like this guy. And then it the, the dislike turned into like just pure annoyance. Like he bothers me. He's making this movie work. Like, <laughs> and then and I just couldn't help but laugh. And I have to admit that this conversation, our review discussion has started to crystallize. My feelings about this film are starting to crystallize. And when the when at the top of this review, at you know, at the end of last night and at the top of this review, the jury was still out for me. I think that the Wolf of Snow Hollow maybe isn't what we all expected. My problems Don't do with, it. My problems with it had a lot to do with story. Like what was the purpose of the cold open and why was her boyfriend so weird and posturing and creepy who was in the trash can was that one of his staff it was one of the yeah it was a, it was a deputy and he was pretty <laughs> non-affected by the fact that his deputy was in a trash can and why did the wolf kill a dude when his mo was to kill young women at night you know the taxidermist just not being set up like we should have had more context for this Paul character. But then I come, to, I come to think that, you know, in a way, the whole detective story, the whole search for the killer or killers or werewolf is kind of a MacGuffin. This is a character movie. And, Don't do it. And an unconventional one at that. It's a character movie about a character that we neither like or are supposed to like. He's completely in over his head, not only as a father, but as a police officer with sheriff aspirations and as a son. 
And you can kind of see how, having come up under Sheriff Marshall, that he's never quite found his own place, his own person. And he's also an external processor, right? Zero filter. He expresses all of his angst, all of his self-doubt and maybe self-loathing in every communication he has with any person that he comes in contact with. We're not supposed to like this character, and the movie is effective in communicating that. You have to look at this film. You're so angry. You have to separate the direction, the filmmaking aspect, which is Jim Cummings, and the acting and story, which is John Marshall. You have to be able to distinguish between these two entities. And if you try to look at the direction and the filmmaking objectively, I think on a base level, the filmmaking achieved its goal. Now, whether that goal was aligned with your goals or hopes, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it wasn't. And was the was the acting and the story, you know, effective? I think the acting was effective for what the story was. And the story had some holes. I had some problems with the story itself. Some. Yeah, but everything that you mentioned, all of those things that stoked your ire, they were kind of nitpicky, don't you think? Like how much the tools are featured in the in the murders? Like, is that something that they're going to go to great lengths to establish when they're trying to create mystery? This movie put me in crisis mode. I wanted to fix it for everybody's sake. I wanted to fill those holes with my thumb. Just be like, I'm going to hold it together here. You guys address the other stuff. We got to tackle all these notes at once. I think that this was a pretty brave piece of filmmaking. I mean, it's all Jim Cummings. He's putting himself out on the line. How can you not respect that? Rhetorical question. So you, Wesley, liked Relic. And you liked that the ideas that went into creating the story of Relic were psychologically interesting. I thought it was boring. I thought that nothing actually happened in Relic. But you found it to be satisfying, especially on an intellectual level. When you talk to me about Jim Cummings' kind of process and thoughts, you know, philosophies around character and story and mind viruses and stuff, I mean, he sounds a little cray-cray, but he also sounds like a person with don't do this. Interesting Don't make ideas. Me feel things. I'm I'm firm in my resolve. Re this movie. I'm just saying this conversation kind of interesting, kind of nudging the Wolf of Snow Hollow in another direction for me. Now I cannot say with complete clarity and honesty that my review is not in reaction to your review and to Brian's review, but I'm going to give the Wolf of Snow Hollow a good. <sighs> I confess that it was a real blow to me to see him seemingly so thoughtful and so taking such responsibility uh, for the movie and trying so hard to make it work. A.K.A. the chick from Relic with a personal story. But he was so earnest and so completely and fully involved. And he said that part of his getting wrapped up and not being able to divest himself from the weight of responsibility was that he was front and center on screen because he's the lead actor he has to carry it he otherwise he could be if he blew it he could be fired as director from another film and someone else a fixer could come in but not jim cummings he's the writer director and star and he can't be replaced that's what i'm saying this is a brave piece of filmmaking dare i say art I wish it didn't suck. Jim Cummings, you seem like a lovely dude. I'm afraid that your friend Robert Forster is cringing in his grave. I will be curious to follow up with you about this film after you cool off 
and you get some perspective. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't own this movie. All I know is when I come at washers like this, it can't be vinegar, man. <laughs> so it's official. Your last nope of 2020. All of 2020 being a nope. This is just another nope in a long string of nopes. Actually, my first nope in a good long while. And, it, and it's, I, I nope because I love. And I hate this movie because I, no, I didn't, I don't love it. I loved the idea and then I was crapped upon. So there you got it. One of our most diametrically opposed reviews, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Nope. No. Uh, are you a, are you a nope or are you yep. a good? Let us know. 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Subscribe to our podcast, share our podcast, and do your friends a favor in the new year. Tell them about our podcast. Thank you for listening and happy new year. Ordinarily, I would say Auf Wiedersehen, but since Auf Wiedersehen means until I see you next, and since I never wish to see you again, to you, sir, I say goodbye. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast.